Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence, for this time of turning our eyes on you and worshiping you and giving you praise from our hearts. We pray that you would, uh, in these moments, allow your Holy Spirit to speak. Help us to become gripped again with how much you want to be involved in our lives and all that you have for us, all the things that you want to charm us with and bless us in Christ's name. Amen. In 1924, Tom Watson Sr. became CEO of International Business Machines Corporation. Anybody know what that stands for? IBM. I think we know it better by IBM, correct? Tom Watson uh, placed one word on the walls of his main headquarters of IBM. And this one word became widely quoted as a corporate slogan throughout his kind of empire that he was CEO of. Any guess what that word is? Pardon? Think. Very good. Wow, we have some historians here. In fact, that rectangular sign simply saying in all capital letters, T-H-I-N-K, was plastered, not just in his headquarters, but eventually as it grew throughout all the different areas in the, in the, uh, the world, that little plaque, think, was placed everywhere. And in fact, in 1935, he created a monthly magazine that he would give to his employees, which was also titled Think. He had this challenge to every employee, and that was to use your head, to think. He initiated this one-word challenge because he believed that business quickly died when people either gave up thinking or weren't allowed permission to think. And he was known for saying, the trouble with everyone is that we don't think enough. He'd say to his employer, we don't get paid for working with our feet, we get paid for working with our head. And that became kind of a standard thing. Another well-known businessman, Henry Ford, was fond of saying around that same time, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. If Ford would just think again. Anyway, um, the Apostle Paul gave that same kind of challenge in Galatians chapter 3. He's just a few um, pages into his writing And he comes to a certain point after he has explained some things and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And in a sense, you could put in capital letters these, this one word, think. If you remember back in Galatians 1 6, Paul begins his letter and he's really upset because they've committed spiritual treason. He says, I'm surprised you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you're actually turning to a different gospel, which isn't really any kind of gospel at all. It isn't good news. And so he goes on in chapters 1 and 2 and he shares through his own personal experience and through his own personal history how it is that he was a genuine apostle bringing a genuine gospel. And he wants to make that very clear. He wants to trigger their thinking so that he finally comes to the end of chapter 2 and he gives a very clear explanation of the gospel. Where he makes it crystal clear, becomes a, for many people a verse that they hold on to in their Christian walk. For me to live as Christ. This whole idea that he says here in Galatians 2, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he he, he goes on and explains 
that there are really two paths. There's one path that you, through your own effort, through keeping rules and regulations, can seek to try to have a relationship with God where he loves you and accepts you. Or you can choose the path that God has revealed and made known, which was a mystery at one time, but now is known to everyone, that you can, by faith in his grace, through the work that was done, that he did on the cross through Jesus, be declared righteous, rather than trying to be righteous through your own efforts. And he makes it very clear, so that he comes to verse... One of chapter three, and he says, you foolish Galatians, or as King James, if you have that version, says, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Or the Living Bible, some of you remember this version. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? Or the message today says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? And then there's one that uh, the Amplified Bible tries to get every kind of meaning into that one verse. And it says, oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. Who has fascinated or bewitched or cast a spell over you? Paul's point is basically this. You guys are acting like zombies. You've become almost spiritual Stepford wives. You were once independent-minded Galatians, my friends, and now you have turned into mindless, docile legalists, thinking again that through some religious activity you will be declared righteous by God and you'll be able to live in the gift of His life and His love and the power of His Holy Spirit, and you guys are duped. He says, it's not going to happen. So please, he says, T-H-I-N-K, would you think, would you use your head? Because it's okay to ask questions. It's really important, you as a congregation, we as people, don't just take the authority of some person who maybe has some, some education and background, who doesn't come with some tradition and experience, who doesn't come with some great and mighty gifts, and somehow seeks to share with you some different kind of good news that is no good news at all. It is okay for you not to be intimidated, not to become in some sense um, cave, that you would cave into some other person's charisma, spellbinding teaching. But it's important that you think, that you ask questions. And then he's going to give them some ways to think so that when people would come, and if you ever are in those positions, because we all do that, even our own past, our own patterns of living, the way that we have grown up and the way that we find acceptance and approval and all these things actually cause us at times to live in a spell. And he says, you know what, it's time to think. Do you know that most new moves of God, whenever God begins to do a new thing, whenever his spirit begins to break through, there's always resistance there's always a sense of, of critics and people come around. That's what happened in Jesus' day. He came sharing the gospel, the good news. And those critics, religious leaders of the day, they wanted to stay safe in their own traditions. But Jesus wasn't willing to be intimidated. He fought and raised questions and he asked questions and he made them have to answer those questions. Most, move, most moves of God happen when people begin to think and they begin to say, those kind of questions that in their mind they begin to express and they challenge the status quo. That happened with Luther. That has happened throughout history through Paul and the Apostle Paul, through Whitfield and Wesley. Do you know the free church movement, this, what we call the free church, actually began when a group of people in, in Europe, through Europe and up through especially northern Europe and some of the Scandinavian countries, began to question 
They began to question the state church, which controlled the church and, and the state. The, the government, in a sense, was in control of things that were happening. And they were putting priests and they were in, in, in pastors and in positions, and those people began to question some of those things, and there a group of them began to question the area of communion, and they said communion should really be something that's for people who are only believers, but in that time, anybody could come into the church and take it, so they began to meet and to, and to do what, um, they would meet in homes, and they would take communion together, those who were believers, and they would get arrested and thrown into jail, and those people left because they wanted to be free from the state-controlled church. It's not free because you don't have to give money. It was free from the control of government, which we kind of mess up today where we say, you know, no, we don't, we don't want the, the, um, the church into the government affairs. That was never, they were supposed to always be in some way interacting, keeping each other as a check. Some of you have grown up in faith traditions that's discouraged thinking and learning and asking questions. I was in seminary with a, a, a friend who came from that kind of tradition. And he was, he was actually looked down upon for coming to seminary because the traditions that he came out of said too much education is not a good thing. Some of you may come out of that. Some of you grew up in church traditions that shamed you when you began to ask questions. Remember that, some of you? You, you, you questioned what was said and you, you don't question that. Some have gone to Christian schools where they taught you what to think rather than how to think. Do you know that God is not afraid for you to think and ask questions? He's not, he, he's not just telling you what to think. He wants you to know also how to think. He is okay with you asking questions. He's okay with you examining and saying, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Some have grown up in families where you weren't encouraged to think for yourself. And sadly, what often happens is people reject Jesus and his way of life that he came to bring people because they've grown up in a system, whether a family, whether a church, whether a school, whatever it may be, where they were forced not to ask questions. And so when they begin to ask questions, they not only just throw out the system, the baby, they also throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater. They throw out the whole style life of living with Jesus. And if you're in that place or you've wondered about that, you got permission to think and to ask questions before God. He's bigger than your doubts and questions. He was able to handle, Jesus was able to handle Thomas when he came doubting, right? That, Jesus didn't go, oh, what do you mean you're doubting? He, he was able to handle it. He can handle your doubts. Well, here we are with Paul, and he's saying this. Use your head. The battle is with your mind. Think, because if you become captive to a lie in any way in life, it will keep you from what God has and desires for you. It will remove you from his arms and his blessing. The battle is truly in your mind, so use your mind. God has given you his word. He has given you the ability to be with other people who study his word so you can begin to understand and say, God, is this what it really says? And if it does say this, this is what I'm going to kind of allow my mind to center on in the truth. And so here is Paul. He's coming to these people. He comes here at this point in this passage. He's standing against these Judaizers who are saying, you know what, if you really want to be accepted by God, you really want to be like one of God's chosen, you need to also Go ahead and be religious and perform in these ways. And if you do this, then you will be called righteous. And they were appealing to the law of Moses and everything. And they used rabbinic argument because they come out of that rabbinic tradition. And Paul himself was a Pharisee who also was a rabbi. He knew how to argue like the rabbis. And so he does this in this passage of Scripture. 
If you look at the verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, Paul asks six questions. This is a very rabbinic way of argument. He asks six questions, and then in verses 6 through 14, he cites six Old Testament references. And so he invites them to think hard with him on this crucial matter of the gospel, the essence of our life with God. After the service, this first hour, I had a number of people come up to me and just say, thank you. I just have to get rooted back into thinking clearly about these things. And one of the things that he points to right from the beginning is to think through the significance of the cross. Think through the significance of the cross. He begins with a question and then he has a response. His question, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And then he makes the response. He says, you should not be unclear about this because before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Again, the Amplified Version, as it goes on, it says, you foolish Galatians, right before your very eyes, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was openly and graphically set forth and portrayed as crucified. The word portrayed is a very familiar word to what these people, when Paul was writing to them, they would understand. In the Greek, they would understand when this word was used because it was used in other contexts. It was used in the context when, a, when Caesar or a king would want to make an announcement known, when he wanted people to know something that was, that was coming up. For instance, let's say they called a festival for the whole city. They would actually place on placards, like posters, on, on, on these sticks. These guys, these servants would walk around with these placards. That would announce the festival. Or if the king had chosen some kind of uh, new holiday or a way of doing something, they would walk around with that. Or if it was a new tax. And I'm sure everyone loves seeing that one walk around. They would, they would walk around and announce it so it was clearly seen before everybody's eyes. And that's in a sense what Paul is saying here. God sent his servant, this placard, his word, announcing his grace, He came through a person named Jesus. And his love was placarded, in a sense, on the cross for everyone to see. In history, at one point in time, it was clear that every eye could look at this and see this way of what it means to walk in God, to know his salvation, and to be safe in the sense of his presence throughout this life. Another way to say this is what when Paul is saying is, before your very eyes, The crucified Jesus was clearly seen like a flashing billboard with neon lights. And when you get confused, folks, look at this flashing billboard, the cross. Look at God's word on the cross and listen to what it says. Use your head. Think clearly. Don't come under the spell of your old pattern of living. You'll never, ever, no matter what anyone says or what they try and think, cause you to think, you will never achieve God's love through your performance. Your standing before God is not based on what you can do. It's not based on even who you are or how much love you have for God. It's not based on that. And if it was, we would all be hopelessly lost. We would all be walking this path, hoping that through this kind of performance and through how much love we could have for God, we would somehow be saved. But just think. Use your head. Look, it's been so clearly put before you. Here is Jesus on the cross with all the love in the world saying, I have saved you and you are now mine. And all you need to do is trust it. The cross, he says, is a billboard announcing this. It's not what you do, but what I've done through Jesus. 
And so when you're confused or tempted to think differently or bullied by someone pushing you into some kind of other sense of understanding, just look at the cross. Think through the significance of this incredible word of God, Jesus, on the cross with his arms stretched saying, come to me and come into my embrace. And there's a second thing he says now at this point. He says, now, we've got this clear. The cross is the, is the billboard that, that, that says this. Now I want you to look at your own experience for a second. He goes on with the next five questions. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, continuing this rhetorical rabbinic approach, before he gets into the next questions, he makes this little statement. I would like to learn just one thing from you. So he's got him thinking through the significance of the cross. Now he wants to turn to their personal experience. And before he does so, and before he asks any of these questions, he says, I just, I want to jumpstart your thinking for a second, get your minds moving, and I want to underline each of these questions with one central thought. And this central thought is this, with regard to your experience, what part did you play in your being saved? What did you do that, that got you saved? That's the one thing I want to know, he says, before I begin with anything. How did you become a follower of Jesus and know the love of God in your heart? And to each of these questions, he addresses a basic idea from different perspectives. And each one of these questions actually could be a sermon in themselves. But we won't do that. Um, Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Simple question. And what I want you to notice throughout this, too, is he often refers to the Spirit of God when he talks about your own personal experience. He talks about the cross, but then he looks at you and he wants you to think for a second. Is the Spirit of God active in your life? So in the church, we hear so much about the Father and His love, which is incredible. We hear about Jesus and His way of life. But there is something that is truly important. That is the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit begins to move in our life, He begins to transform our life. What was really interesting at this time in history, as the gospel was being proclaimed, as it went from Jerusalem to Judea, then to Samaria. And you remember when Acts, when Peter went and brought Cornelius the gospel, it says that when they received, when they trusted, when they heard, that's all it says, when he heard about Jesus, they began to speak in tongues. The sign of the Spirit, there was an evidence that God had come upon them. And that was true even as Paul went to these different places. There was a sense that when when God was opening up his kingdom, he was giving a sign. He was stamping this to be true. And so he says to him, he says, when you when you came to Christ, did you did you receive the spirit by observing the law? No. The sign of his spirit on your life came the moment you heard. Verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, you're now trying to complete or attain your goal by human effort? Or I like the Greek. It's the idea there's the Spirit and then there's the flesh. The Spirit is that which is all about God's power and what He can do. Because really, in our hearts and our lives, the only thing that transforms us is not our own activity and our own action, our own efforts. It's the work of the Spirit of God. The flesh is that which we try and do in our own strength which can never have enough strength to do the kind of things that change the parts of us that need to be changed. And so he says, and he uses these words, they're very important, it's a compound verb. He uses the word beginning, after beginning with the Spirit, and he links it with the word attain or complete your goal. It's, it's used only two times in Scripture. In one other place, it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Here Paul writes, I am confident of this, that he who began, this beginning, a good work in you, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. To the Philippians, he's saying, you know what, guys? 
don't be discouraged if you look at your life and you look at the things that are going on because you know that because when you open your heart to God and you walk in faith with response to God, God is the one who promises to complete the things in your life that he said he would do. He says, so just have confidence. Now here Paul is saying to them, you guys, are you telling me that you started with God and now you think you're going to end it by yourself? And you go, it's, it's not going to work. And then he says in verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Paul's using a word here of the, the idea is your, the experiences you've had since you've come to faith in Christ and some of the difficulty and trials and, that you've experienced as a result of this. Are you going to say you've done all this for nothing now? And verse 5, does, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? or because you believe what you heard. It's almost similar to the first one. The first question, really, in in verse 2, that question, he's asking the question, did you receive? In this broken, needy, helpless state, did you receive this? You were like a sponge just trying to drink in the water. Like All that you could do was only open your hands and receive. And at this end, he's now saying, here is God. And the word give is a, is a very important word. It's the idea of abundant provision. It's beyond what you could imagine. It's as if you were waiting, hoping for a, a little bit of a drink and you get just splashed with a downpour. And he says, do you think this God, who just abundantly gives all himself to you, and gives you his spirit and through even works miracles. Because in, when Paul came, there was healings. There were, there were miraculous activities of things that were done. And you think, do you think all that? What happened when that happened? When that experience occurred in your life, it was merely a gift of grace. And it was only something that God did. And so he kind of asks us to think for a second. Not only does a cross display the love of God, and it's only about trusting him. Now he comes and he says, even look at your own experience. Why is it, folks, I'm like this, we're all like this. Why is it that when we come to the place, every person who comes to Christ comes to the end of themselves. They come to this sense of need. They come to this understanding that it's, it's more than me. My sin has, has it's cut me off from God. My sin has brought frustration into my life. My sin is directing my life towards hell. And someday, without the intervention of God, I will be apart from him for eternity. Why is it when we accept that grace and we just cry out and say, thank you, God, you're so generous. We begin to walk in our own supply of strength. And start telling other people, you know, if you do this and you do that, if you dress a certain way, if you play certain music this way, if you do... You know, this kind of regimen, if you do that, all these doing things, that somehow you're going to receive God's acceptance. I'm not saying there aren't disciplines that we do that help God's love become more a part of our life. But I'm talking about beginning to think in somehow that in our own strength, that through our own experience, we're going to end what God started. And that's what Paul's saying. Never going to happen. No church that is formed by the power and the Spirit of God that then through its own strength and its own gifts becomes enamored with themselves somehow thinks that they're going to go out and change lives. You won't do it. We won't do it. We can do all the good works in this community that we want, but if God isn't in it and His power isn't available and we don't walk in complete humbleness, understanding the significance of the cross and that's what's essential, we will not see God change lives. We'll see Him change behavior, but we won't see Him change hearts.
And so he says, look at your experience. And then I love this next part. We're not going to get into all the details of verses 6 through 14, but Paul turns to Scripture now at this point, and he says, let's use Abraham as an illustration. Let me illustrate all this now through the Scripture. I've talked about the significance, and you have to use the, think through the significance of the cross, think through the significance of your own experience. Now let's go back to Scripture itself and think through the significance, especially in the life of a man named Abraham. And so he uses six scriptures in a rabbinic way. And he says, first, consider Abraham, verse six. He believed God. And you got to underline, he believed God. He believed God. That's all. He believed God. And it, this belief, this trust was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, six. Understand, think this word for understanding means use your head. Then that those who believe, underline it again, those who believe Not those who behave a certain way, but those who believe are children of Abraham. You want to know the likeness of God in this family? It's not going to be because of behavior. It's because of belief. It's trust in this God and his promise. And so he says, I want you to get this clear. Understand then that those who believe, they're the ones who are children of Abraham. And then verse 8 is interesting. The scripture foresaw that God would justify. And and this, if you ever wonder about the the view of, of, of... of Paul himself and Jesus and others with regard to the Old Testament, they had an incredibly high view of Scripture. This word, just the Scripture of God, would be, it would be as almost as if he would be saying it this way. If I can find it here. He says, Scripture foresaw that God, or in another sense, God wrote in the Old Testament what he would do in the future. He didn't make any bones about it. This is God's word. So the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3, 18, 18, 22, 18. Those are all verses that say the same thing. Verse 9, so that those who have faith, again, underlying belief, not behavior, belief, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, belief. And then he goes for about three verses, 10 through 13, and he talks about the other way. If you, here's the way of belief. Now, if you want to go the way of the law, you'll find not only we live in the curse, find frustration, and find yourself headed to hell if you're going to try and do it in your own strength. He says this very clearly. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law. It's really interesting here. The way of the gospel, the way of Christ is always faith and belief. The way of the law, the way of human effort is always do, do, do. That's what it says here. Deuteronomy 27, 6, verse 11. Clearly, no one is justified. No one is declared righteous before God by their efforts, the law, because the righteous we find in Scripture will live by faith. It's through trust. Habakkuk 2, 4. Verse 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who what does, you've got to underline again, it's about behavior, it's about doing things. And if you just do these things, then you'll be, find life baloney. It doesn't happen that way. In fact, you'll find a curse. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith, it's through belief, not behavior, but through belief, we might receive the promise again of what? The spirit. What God wants is 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 a people alive with his spirit because they trust in Jesus, who is God incarnate, who is abundantly willing to give you all the grace you need. 
to become like him. The Judaizers, they appealed to Moses, but Paul one-ups them saying, turn a little farther back in your Bible, just go a little bit further back and let's look at Abraham. If you think they got you right now, let's think again. Just go a little bit further back and let's look at Abraham. How was he saved? Let's think. So that verse 6 of chapter 15, Paul quotes as Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account as being righteous. He was righteous, declared righteous by belief. In the crux of Paul's illustration, you almost need to go over the story of Abraham again. Because it's, it's an incredible illustration if you just look at the illustration of it. God comes to Abraham, chapter 12 of verse Genesis. He's living in a land, foreign land. He's, he's, he's living a land among a land of idols. And, and God comes to him and he recognizes and hears God's voice. And God calls him out of that to go to a place, to a new home, to, to follow him by faith, by trust. And so Abraham, by trust, begins to follow God. In that promise, when he called him out of that place, he said, Abraham, not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to bless your children and your children's children. In fact, the whole world's going to be blessed because you believe me. And Abraham goes, this is really cool. So he tells his wife, we've got to go. That's where the blessing is. He begins to walk with God. He begins to believe and trust God. And as he's leaving and trusting God, there's one problem. Sarah's barren. She can't have children. She's getting up there in years, and he's getting up there in years. You can imagine the conversation that they're having. Um, Abraham, God said, what was this again, that he'd bless us with many nations? And she's feeling shame because she can't bear the child. And as they're kind of wrestling through that, you can imagine Abraham laying his head down on a rock. Because they have pillows, and he's laying his head down. and He's about to fall asleep, and he hears God speak to him again. Galatians, uh, Genesis 15. And he says, Abraham, yes, Lord. He says, I'd like you to step outside the tent. It's late at night. You step outside the tent, okay? Abraham steps outside the tent. And, he, and, and Abraham's standing outside the tent. It's dark except for it's lit because of the sky filled with bright stars. And he says, Abraham, do you think I've forgotten you and the promise I made to you? And Abraham's going, well, you know... Sarah's getting up there in years, and, and you can hear this. And, and God says, you know what, Abraham? I want you to look up. Use your head for a second and look up. You see all those stars? Count them. Can't. That's how many descendants you will have. And in the same way they brighten up the sky, so will all your descendants be bright blessings of God for this whole entire world. And then it says in Genesis 15, 6, here's the word, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This is my gift, my promise to you, Abraham, to provide abundantly beyond what you could imagine or think. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to hear God this morning. And step outside yourself for a moment. Step outside your life. Your life may look disoriented. It may look a mess. You may even look at your own sin and say, I've created such a mess that there's no way that I'll experience God's blessing. And if I do, it's just going to be a little bit. Maybe if I try really hard, but I tried that route. And it's just everything about my life is, I've blown it. How can I? And God says, step outside your life for a second. 
And I want you, like Abraham, to do this. I want you to look up. Because placarded in the sky are not only stars, but is the cross of Christ throughout history that says, there is nothing you can do that you can achieve that can get you my love. It is a gift that I offer to you. And if you will just believe my promise, I will bless you. If you will just turn your heart to me and listen and trust me and obey, I will begin to empower you and work through your life. Those areas, if you're willing to turn them over to me, maybe within your marriage or, or it's within a struggle with trying to find work right now or some other area, if you will just turn them over to me, I will promise to bless you. It doesn't mean that he's going to heal necessarily everything because there are other people involved, but he will work in your life to provide you what you need if you will what? Behave. Believe a promise. And that promise is that in Jesus Christ, the whole heart of God was made manifest that he has loved you and he has forgiven you. There is nothing you can do that can cause him to forgive you any further than this. And if you trust that, and trust is not just hearing this, it means that you actually, it puts the weight of your life. You say, I will throw my life into your hands. I will put my life in your hands because I trust that you are safe with my life. If you're willing to do that, all your sin is forgiven and the power of the Holy Spirit of God will begin to activate Himself in your life. Now I want you to think of, of just the three things in closing. Just some practical considerations to apply. I want you to think really hard for a second. What do you make significant in your walk with God that is truly just insignificant? What do you hold up as being significant and, and say to other people, well, this is really significant, and you mix up the water of life with the container? And maybe even because you're afraid, you, you actually intimidate like the Judaizers did and bully people. I had someone come up to me after the first service and said, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts because, you know, I have to share with you, I am in a situation where I'm at, that's exactly what's happening to my life right now. And I just am going to cling to the cross again. And I said, boy, that's what you need to do. See, one of the things religious people do is use their rules as a way of controlling you. They either put or keep people in their place by behavior. If you behave this way and then do it, you know, do work hard enough, then you're going to be good. and You're going to be righteous baloney. God did not coerce us with rules from without, but set us free within by his overwhelming love. It is the love of God that comes into our hearts that actually changes the thought patterns. It actually changes the brain patterns in your mind that make you a person that becomes more like Jesus. And that's why Paul would say at a certain point here in Galatians 5, 6, he says, here's a new law. You don't live by a bunch of external laws. You live by a new law that's actually in your heart because you believe in the promise of God, which gives you the Holy Spirit to change your life. And he says, here's the new law. The only law. The only thing that counts, he says, is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. It's pretty simple. You'll find in every church people who will try to herd you into the corral of religious rules and regulations because they do not know the freedom of living and the transforming love of God through Jesus Christ. But don't, for a second, give in to their intimidation. Don't be strong-armed by their religious tactics. That's what got Paul mad. First, he was mad because you were deserting him. Secondly, he was mad because he said, guess what, you're caving in. You're not thinking about the truth of the gospel. 
So think about the significance of the cross. Secondly, I want you to think about this. Are you afraid to let people question? Parents, are you afraid to let your kids question? Celebrate their questions. Let them know that God is bigger than their questions. You may not have them all answered. It's okay to sometimes say that's a mystery to me too. But I believe God gets it. When your kids are in their adolescent years and they really are trying to actually internalize their own values, instead of trying to force your external values in, if you haven't lived that life for a period of time, now pray and let them ask. And allow their asking questions because sometimes it clarifies your own understanding of what's essential. And then third, here's, here's the message that I think Paul wants to get across. He says, do you believe that God has poured out his spirit upon us? He is so abundantly provided. One of the verses I've been reading in my own quiet time is in Romans. And it's, it, it's a simple scripture where he says in Romans 5, 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through this one man? They will actually reign. They'll be like kings. They'll be in control. They have all at their disposal. So think for a second. Do we believe God has poured out his spirit upon us and that he loves us so much that his grace means that we are always in his hands? We're not just saved for eternity, but we're safe today as well. A mother woke up during a violent thunderstorm. She was worried about her son. She hurried to her son's room. There was this particularly bright flash of lightning, and she just knew when that lightning flashed across and through the house that her son would be terrified. So she ran into his room, and to her surprise, he was standing at the window looking out. I was looking outside, he turned and said to his mom, and you'll never guess what happened. God took my picture. He was convinced God was at work and that the universe that he was in was perfectly safe, a perfectly safe place for him to be. Being convinced that we are safe in God's hands is what Paul called the peace of Christ, living in this abundant provision of grace. I'm not just saved. I'm safe today. You're safe today. You don't have a job. You have things going on in your life that are a mess. God is still holding you if you're trusting him. And so ask yourself this question. What would my life look like if I lived in the subtle conviction that because of God's character and God's competence, his character, who he is, and that never changes, and his competence, his ability to handle things in your life, what would my life look like if I lived in the subtle conviction that because of God's character and competence, this world is a perfectly safe place for me to be. Where would your anxiety level be? If you had a settled trust that your life was perfectly in hands of God. I would guess a number of people would not be so hurried. You might be busy but you would have an inner calmness and poise that God's in control. My guess would be if you think through many of the things, you would be less of one thing and more of another. You would be less willing or less prone to hoard and more willing to be generous and say, God, I'm going to give. God, I'm going to love that person that's hard to love because I am safe. 
God, I can, I can live my life out even if other people look at me or think differently. I can know that you have control. And I am safe in your hands.